You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on sight. Discussions of an adult nature, adult language, and spoilers for the films discussed are most likely. Still on board? Come on in. Enjoy your stay. They must be destroyed on sight! It's They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 112, and I am your host, Lee. You're not only wrong, you're wrong at the top of your voice, Russell. And I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. Going to kill you with no hard feelings, Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. And uh, that line, uh, you're not just wrong, you're wrong at the top of your voice. That is one of the great lines in, in history, I think. it's. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to talk about a lot of how this is kind of maybe the best movie ever in a lot of ways. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, we are going to be talking about Bad Day at Black Rock, and we're still technically in our classic Western series, but this is sort of a bridge. This is classic Western and classic noir at the same time. It's it's kind of both things, right? It's kind um, of both and then simultaneously neither. It, uh, that's something we'll probably get into a little bit more as, as we go on. But as, as Sherlock Holmes would say, this movie is very singular. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but before we get to that, we, we do have a little bit of housekeeping to, to get through. We do have one comment to get to here, and uh, this is a negative comment from one of our YouTube versions of our podcast. This is from our Big Sleep episode, and this is from Antipod Eno. And he said, sorry, not here for Deadpool. You lost me after a few minutes. And uh, essentially, I think we, we got into what we were watching at that time. And right. one of us talked about Deadpool. It was probably me was or you. We were probably, I, I think at that time we had seen it yeah. a couple of weeks apart or something. So we got to talking about it a bit. And uh, yeah, well. So so he, could, he couldn't last for 10 minutes about us talking about Deadpool and then get into the episode. So he just totally tuned out. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Yeah. I actually think the Big Sleep episode is one of the best ones we ever did. So uh, I would uh, I would say it's his loss, ultimately. It is his loss. I mean, yeah. Yeah, anti-Padino. And then all you had to do was like just like skip ahead, right? Exactly. Like if you, you're sitting at a computer or on your phone or whatever listening to a podcast and you don't like the, the bit at the beginning where we chat, just skip. Then, I do it all the time. Come and, on. And, yeah, and, and here's the thing. Anti-Padino, you are the epitome of stupid YouTube commenter. Because well, he didn't, he didn't use a racial slur. So at least we get it. Well, he gets, okay. he gets above the like, you know, yeah, the he, real <laughs> scum suckers on, on YouTube. You know, he 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 didn't say he didn't say like, screw you, bunch of uh, n words, or screw you, uh, faggot, or whatever. You know, not the usual YouTube kind of delivery. But here's the thing. He's very much of the same mindset of basically all YouTube viewers that are on the lower level, on the lower tier. They don't read the fucking show notes. They don't read the fucking description. In the description, I say, we talk about what we've watched as of late before we get into the reviews. So he was warned. He just did not do his due diligence to uh, 
you know. Well, and and I feel like there's this uh, sense. I mean, you know, which YouTube is is designed for, for so many people. It's immediate gratification. Where it's like, oh, this mm-hmm. is longer than long. I don't care anymore. Go, you know. There's a, there's like, a that's, ma- fine. that's fine. You know, yeah, there, there's there's he a major selected himself out of our podcast listenership, and you know what? Fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, fuck that guy. Because you know? and, and, and here's the thing: he's he's not going to listen to this episode, obviously. So <laughs> fuck oh, yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We should um, tag him in the in the uh, in the in the show notes. You know, yeah. I, I, Random I, I, YouTube commenter guy. You know, I, 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 I you. yeah. I plan on responding to him on the YouTube version of this. So uh, okay, uh, and yeah. it's going to be much more nasty than what we said here. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure his mom likes him, but you know, like uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that guy had a mother. But anyway, that yeah, that was the only comment we had. So we'll we'll move on to what we've watched in the last little while, and uh, I'll throw it to you first, Daniel. Sure. Um, this is just a rewatch, and I don't take this too seriously. I um, was flipping channels on I think New Year's Eve, and uh, Austin Powers, the first Austin Powers film, was on. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't watched this in like ten years, probably longer, fifteen years, maybe. Let's give it a shot. And dear God, is that movie a piece of shit? <laughs> 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 you remember that that time when we all just kind of thought mike myers was like kind of clever and interesting and you know he was he was kind of broad but at least he had like you know there was a sense in which he was doing something clever with the material and uh i don't know if it's just having absorbed so many of those 60s films now that i hadn't you know at the time or if it's just like my god you're making the most obvious jokes ever or if it's just sort of the modern day kind of knowledge of who Mike Myers has become just sort of like infects everything. But my God, that movie is so fucking awful. It is just the most hackneyed one note piece of yeah. shit. And I, I used to like that film too, but I mean, yeah. on, Me too. Watch, I mean, on yeah. rewatch yeah, no, I totally agree. It, it doesn't work. None of them work. First one is probably the best. Yeah. You know, the second one, you know, was kind of bigger budget and, you know, kind of had, but by the third one, they're just going back to the same well over and over and over again. And it's just, it's just, the, the third one is actively awful. Like, even mm-hmm. I think maybe in like 96, there was just this sense that nobody was really doing this at that time. And there's some kind of visual you know, kind of humor behind it. And Elizabeth Hurley is cute and like, she's really good. I like her in the film, but I mean, you know, the, the worst thing they ever did was cast Mike Myers. <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah, I was reading on the Wikipedia page and the original plan was uh, they were trying to get Jim Carrey to play Dr. Evil. Really? Yeah, and so it would have been kind of a Jim Carrey, Mike Myers vehicle at that point. I think, I mean, ironically, I think Mike Myers is better as Dr. Evil than he is as Austin Powers. Mm -hmm. And I think that casting a more, I mean, it'd be interesting to do sort of a, a, let's do the 60s spy genre today with a more, with with the kind of, we have a more sophisticated, you know, kind of mass appeal towards satire. I mean, in fact, the the Get Smart uh, movie with uh, Steve Carell, is sort of a, a better version of, of that's it's actually way forward. better. I enjoyed that a lot more. Oh, um, I saw that theatrically and really enjoyed it. I haven't seen it since it was in theaters, but that was a movie that was way better than it had any right to be. Well, um, I'm, I'm I'm trying to think who you would put in the uh, Austin Powers role if you took Mike Myers and just made him Doctor Evil. Right. Uh, who who would I cast at that at that point? Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's the obvious. Just make it Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> well. <laughs> 
<laughs> that that might work. That might work. Damn. I mean, I think the thing for me is, and I keep thinking about it, but I think I think the thing for me is like it has so little to say about the sixties. Yeah, you know, it no. really, it really doesn't have anything to say about. I mean, it's not even really about the movies. It's just sort of like referencing them visually and kind of doing. It's, it's all know, artifice. The, it's right, artifice. Yeah. But it's it's like the whole point of like we've we've brought this guy back from the sixties and he's this kind of free love guy and he's going into the modern era. And then basically like the whole thing is he ends up in this like hectoring mommy relationship with the daughter of his former love interest, which is like kind of super creepy in and of itself. (laughs) But it's also, you know, like it's not really about, you know, kind of interrogating that idea of like, what does a sixties free love super spy guy kind of respond to in the nineties? It's just sort of like, Oh look! Now we don't say these things anymore. You know. Yeah, it's, and and they do nothing with it anyway because at the end it ends up Vanessa's a fembot. So it's like, what the fuck? Right. Well, at least that's the beginning of the second movie. We we, yeah. we pretend that doesn't exist. You know. Yeah. I, I pretend none of these movies exist at this point, honestly. But yeah, no, um, no. I, I just saw it on, and I went, "Oh, this will be like a fun like thing to just sit and watch for a little while." And God, I just I turned it off after the uh, after the a lot of vagina scene. Like that was this sort of, you know, I I kind of got that far that I went. Now the rest is just, we're just going to run around in the basement. Yeah. Yeah. Which was tiresome even on a first watch. It's, I mean, it really is a Like it's six minute SNL sketch, you know, extended to, yeah. That's that's what it feels like now. It feels like an SNL movie, like a bad SNL movie, you know, Wayne's world was good, but this is just, no, no. Well, Um, I would. We should definitely do the Wayne's World movies at some mm-hmm. point. I would. I th- those are legitimately good movies. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, we should do. Also, those. so I married an axe murderer. That's a that's a legitimately de- decent flick too. You know. Yeah, I'd be I'd be into that. Um, fucking yeah. It's the, those movies uh, again. You made a good point. Seeing so many movies, just watching all kinds of shit from the sixties. Now it's just, it, it's all artifice. It's, it, all those movies depend on the fact that the audience has no knowledge of movies from the sixties at all. It, right. it, they're they're trying to pretend that they're informing you on tropes of the sixties that don't necessarily even exist. And I'll, I'll just mention, um, I don't know if it's available on American Netflix, but on Canadian Netflix right now, our man Flint is streaming on Netflix. Go watch that instead of fucking Austin Powers. That that's the better parody, quote unquote, of well, the James a, Bond kind of stuff. This is the, I think we should do a sixty spy movie series at some point mm-hmm. because I've watched a few of them now. I've seen Armand Flint and um, what's the sequel? There's another mm. Flint. Ah, uh, Jesus! I, I don't. Anyway, even... I've seen. I've seen the the thing is that like the the spy movie sort of became an instant parody genre almost the second James Bond hit it big, and then people were making fun of James Bond. Within like twenty minutes of the of the movie ending, you know, the first time. Well, let's well, go make fun of that. Well, I mean, we even did Rebus, and that's kind of a, a parody to a certain extent of that sort of genre. It's a genre that's sort of designed to be sort of goofy and fun, but I mean, it just mm-hmm. sort of I don't know the idea of taking the piss out of something that was sort of goofy and silly to begin with. I mean, yeah. it's clear that they loved the James Bond movies. You know that that's why they made it, but it is sort of like you know. I don't know. It's just a piece of crap. <laughs> yeah. And it, it kind of feels they they were almost vultures where they were they were picking on the bones of the James Bond franchise at that point where it was really in the dregs. You know, it was yeah. really going downhill. So it's, fuck, let's let's capitalize on the fact that James Bond is really crap now. And, yeah. and let's let's really make fun of it, you know. 
You know, I really wish. Uh, I mean, there was this um, story that that Tarantino was trying to make a uh, a James Bond film, like around, right? I mean, right around that time, even this is when Tarantino. I think, well, a couple of years later, because it was after Jackie Brown, and um, he he didn't he he was like, I'm not even going to do it. It doesn't even have to be in continuity. I just want to do a James Bond film, and um, the Broccoli family just would not. They were just like, fuck that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which is, I mean, I understand for their, like, kind of protecting their property or whatever, but with all the terrible things in the James Bond franchise to say, yeah, let's not let brilliant auteur filmmaker kind of have his go at it. You know, you let Casino Royale happen, the original mm-hmm. Casino Royale, but, you know, no, no, let's not. Um, yeah. Because I think that would have been a fascinating look at that, you know, Kind of, that would have been yeah. way better than the later Pierce Brosnan stuff. I mean, come on, <laughs> really? <laughs> You're a villain with diamonds embedded in his face, and like, come on, dude, this is just fuck <laughs> off. Just, just fuck off. Just, just give it to somebody else and let them do something with it. I mean, honestly, I'm kind of excited by the idea that Daniel Craig is going to do another James Bond film. That kind of interesting I'm, quite a bit. I'm a couple behind I saw Quantum of Solace and I haven't seen any of the ones after that uh-huh. I think there are two that I haven't seen at this point Skyfall um, is fucking great I heard that Skyfall is really good so yeah. you know I don't know I've been uh I had this like thing I was gonna like start what because a bunch of the James Bond films are actually on Amazon Prime mm-hmm. um and I have I'm an Amazon Prime member so it was like oh yeah I can just sit and watch these you know kind of randomly so um, I watched the first, and we talked about it when I uh, when I first watched it. But um, I need to get back to that maybe and uh, and, and watch a lot of these, and because uh, I haven't seen a lot of the originals, something to think about in my copious free time. I'll go and watch all the James Bond movies. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I've got a couple things to mention here. Sure. Um, first thing uh, I'll mention is a movie called uh, Remember from 2015. This is a Christopher Plummer and um, Martin Landau before he died. Is it about the reattachment of a penis? No, it's not. Okay. <laughs> Remember. Uh, I get it. Um, no, this this is uh, Adam E. Goen, uh, a film, a Canadian oh, director. Oh, nice. Um, this is... This was a pleasant surprise for me. I really enjoyed this. This is basically... Uh, a movie about uh, two, you know, senior citizens, the end of their lives in an old folks home. Christopher Plummer's character has dementia, and he is being sent on a mission by Martin Landau's character to hunt down a Nazi war criminal and kill him. Because both of these guys were in Auschwitz, and they know who this guy is. They've they've hunted, they found him out, and now he's being sent on a mission to hunt this guy down. Um, he's under an assumed name, so he has to go uh, all over the U.S. and Canada to find this guy because there's several different people under this name, so he has to confirm who the actual guy is. Does he walk up to somebody's door and say, are you Sarah Connor? No, <laughs> no, not quite. Um, <laughs> but um, it's... it's, it's very... I'm sorry, this sounds really good. I'm not trying to make fun of it. I'm just... No, uh... no, 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 I, I appreciate it, but uh, it's... It's it's a very interesting film, man. It, it, it's very it, it's basically an it's it's a Nazi exploitation film in the right. sense that it's like a Nazi revenge film where let's kill the Nazis. Hey, all right, already right. you got to we're down with that. Yeah, you, already you got to start. It's from very twenty seventeen, right? You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but goddamn, I, I will just say for for the record, this touched me emotionally in a way that it might not other people because basically Martin Landau and Christopher Plummer play two sides of 
just basically what I went through with my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather suffered from dementia and he also, um, he also suffered from, um, uh, basically, uh, lung problems. Like he, he had to be on a breather all the time and shit like that. So I know both of these things very in depth and both of these performances are fucking amazing. Um, just so true to what it's like Christopher Plummer's performance of early onset, uh, Alzheimer's or whatever is, very on point. It's very much real. Uh, Martin Landau, the way he coughs, uh, he's acting this the way he coughs, but it's so fucking authentic of just yeah. someone suffering from that. So both of these guys already, they gave me kind of a bear pass on this movie just from the performances altogether. But this is just really interesting because uh, Christopher Plummer, he's, he, he's suffering for dementia, so he forgets. Every time he wakes up, he forgets shit. So he has this letter that Martin Lando wrote out for him. Uh, your your wife has died. So the promise was made after his wife died. He would go on this mission to hunt this Nazi war criminal down. So the letter starts, your wife has died. And here's the whole story. Here's what you have to do. Cross off everything you've done on this letter so far. So you can, you know, reference everything and, and just keep going on. So you have to sort of buy into the fact that this dementia uh, suffering senior citizen has managed to get out of his old folks home and go across country and do this shit. I mean, you have, you have to sort of buy into that, but the performance is so goddamn good. And there's this amazing fucking twist in this film. Um, I will say it kind of kills a rewatch to a certain degree, but there is an amazing fucking twist in this. It's, it's a great revenge film. Um, It's incredibly sad and horrific at the same time. And um, it's already on my best of list for 2018 first time watches. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, no, it, it sounds like, and this is not meant to be like insulting in the slightest. It sounds like the kind of film that has a twist. And uh, I'm not going to try to predict what the twist is. If, if you say it's effective, then it's probably not any of the three I'm thinking of the, the really cheesy, bad kinds of twists. But um, it sounds really, it sounds really good. And I, de- I definitely, I'm going to put that on my list too, too much. Um, have you seen a film called Yuli's Gold? I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. It's been literally twenty years since I've seen it. I saw it. It's not a Peter. It's not Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda. Right? Peter yeah. Fonda. Yeah, he's a uh, an apiarist, a beekeeper, mm-hmm. and I think Florida. And the um, whole thing is like his uh, kind of shitbird son gets involved in some uh, some crime bullshit i again i forget the details because it's been 20 years but uh it is kind of about this old man having to kind of become a badass again you know i don't know the description just sort of kind of made me think of that a little bit so you know christopher Plummer doesn't necessarily become a badass in this again he reminds me of a grandfather it's like it's less i'm kind of i kind of you know but he he has to kind of find the inner reserves to you know right kind of deal with the situation uh but i I will say the inner reserves are part of the twist as well yeah well (laughs) but well don't don't say anything else i think i think this is a this is a you know we we need to possibly discuss it although you know whenever whenever we uh talk about that we never we have we still have done mystery road uh, mm-hmm. which was uh, one that I know we had talked about doing a while back. But uh, what was the other uh, thing you were going to talk about there, Lee? Okay, so uh, another one I watched, uh, Once Upon a Time in Venice uh, from 2017. This is just a Bruce Willis movie. Okay, so... Because uh, when you think Venice... <laughs> well, this is this is like Venice, California or whatever. Like Venice, oh, California well, yeah, shit. sure. Yeah, okay. okay. It, it's, it's not, it's not uh, you know, Europe. No gondolas right? in this. 
no gondolas. So first off, I'll just I'll just ask you briefly, what's your opinion of Bruce Willis? He's he's often good and mm-hmm. often in shit. And and that's those two things are not mutual those are not two separate Venn diagram kind of <laughs> concepts, right? You know? He's often good in shit. He's often in stuff that's good that where he's shit. He seems like a total asshole when he wants to be, right. and not an asshole at other times. You know, I mean you you kinda listen to people who've worked with him and you know, he just he's kinda all over the map. Um I'm a fan of Bruce Willis. I mean, Bruce Willis is a big part of my, you know, kind of upbringing and just sort of, sort of my, like, I like Bruce Willis, but I don't like go and see like everything he's in or anything, but I tend, I tend to like him as an actor more than I don't. Yeah. I I'm on board with that. I like Bruce Willis. I think he's really talented. And I think he's also a really lazy asshole at the same time, as as far as a lot of the stuff he does Um, here. He's actually kind of good. You know, he's having fun with this. This is basically kind of, it kind of depends on your love of him in Pulp Fiction to a certain degree. Right. Right. I do love him in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And and, and so uh, there's, there's all this sort of Dick, Dale-ish surf music in the background of the movie oh. for the entire thing. It's like, yeah, yeah, remember in Pulp Fiction, Bruce Willis? Yeah, 20 oh. years ago. Uh, but at the same time, Bruce Willis seems to be having fun with this. He's basically this sort of stunted, uh, hasn't grown up kind of private detective guy. Uh, he still skateboards. His uh, stunt double is nude for half of this film, basically. Bowski. And to hammer that point home, John Goodman is in this film as well as the sidekick. So, <laughs> so, 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 so let me, let me just tell, I, I don't know how much this is going to come through for the audience, but you broke up for me a little bit in your discussion okay. of that from, you know, naked stunt guy on the skateboard. And then the next thing I heard was Bowski and John Goodman is in this. And so, yeah. uh, I feel like I know exactly what this movie is, and uh, I feel like it's a uh, get fairly inebriated and enjoy kind of. It's, it's uh, exactly yeah. that. It's a film where yeah. it sort of just depends on you knowing that John Goodman was in The Big Lebowski and Bruce Willis was in Pulp Fiction. Let's mash mm-hmm. those two movies together. Hey, Jason Momoa is in it. Uh, oh, he's awful, like man. No. He's good. He's good. Yeah. And he's good in this. He's good as this yeah. like, sort of comical. I, mean, uh, I, I, I love John Goodman. I mean, John Goodman is is a genius. John Goodman's so underrated as yeah. He's a, he's a great fucking actor, and he's great in this. Honestly, he steals this entire movie, especially in the last half of this movie. He just totally fucking steals it away from Bruce Willis. He just totally takes it away from him. That was the most entertaining part of this movie. It's like the second half of it where John Goodman just sort of takes over and just goes crazy. I just kind of feel like John Goodman just sort of improvised all this shit. He he's just like fuck the script. I'm just gonna fucking say whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> And I think Bruce Willis kind of does that in every movie anyway. Um, yeah. Because uh, he got away with it in Die Hard. He improvised a lot of stuff in Die Hard. It was such a big success where all of a sudden people just won't say no to Bruce Willis anymore. <laughs> right. And now I kind of want to do like some of the, the 90s questionable Bruce Willis choices movies. <laughs> uh, but this this is, as far as, you know, direct to video or direct to Netflix kind of shit for Bruce Willis, this is pretty decent. Although... There's some very glaring ADR moments where it's, yeah, we, well, we we need we need Bruce Willis to say these lines, and you know Bruce Willis is like, "Fuck that! I'm not coming back to say these lines." <laughs> you can you can like hear the cell phone chatter in the background. <laughs> they just got him on the Skype, you know, and he's like, yippee ki yay, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's not even that good. It's just some guy who doesn't sound <laughs> anything like Bruce Willis saying these lines, but yeah, it's it's kind of fun. The only other one I'll mention is Crimson Peak from 2015, the uh, Guillermo del Toro film. 
Finally got around to watching this. Really loved it. It's it's Tim Burton on crack. Well, and that's Guillermo del Toro's career. Yeah, or, but know, I mean, Tim Burton on acid or Tim Burton on some kind of drug that you know makes it a lot better. Yeah, visually, <laughs> this, this movie's great. Like it's it's a really good ghost story. Uh, visually, it's it's pretty fucking amazing. The performances are all good. It, it's kind of like a throwback. It, it, it's basically Victorian era, but it's got all the trappings of gothic horror. It feels like a Hammer movie that just was never made. And I liked it. I liked, I liked the ghosts in it. Maybe some of the effects are a little bit too CGI at times, but although they did use a lot of practical effects for the ghosts, they actually had people physically as actors playing the ghosts on set. And they just did some like CGI enhancements or whatever for the actual film. I'm looking forward to seeing his Shape of Water or whatever it is that just came yeah, out. Yeah, no, that one looks really interesting. So yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely down for that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, Crimson Peak, Canadian Netflix at least just showed up. And if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth seeing. Um, I was probably probably better than Crimson Tide. Maybe a little bit. Yeah, maybe. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll just go to a quick break for some uh, podcasts uh, that we listen to and love, and maybe a little bit of music, and we'll be back to talk about Bad Day at Black Rock. You ungodly warlock. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses all things Grindhouse, Exploitation, Drive-In, and B-Movies. Your three hosts, Mike. We're going to discuss the Rene Martinez-directed picture, the $6,000... Last what? Time. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the name of the Super movie. Super Soul that's, Brother. That's the name. When you that's start the movie. Your DVD cover. When you start the movie, the first thing that that's comes up says. is the title, and it says $6,000. Mark. And I've been around a girl stroking a horse's dick. Somehow, somewhere down the line, I'm going to use that clip against you. Shh. <laughs> Please do. And listener favorite, Iris. The deployment sock. And I'm like, deployment sock? What the fuck is a deployment sock? He goes, you know, you know that sock that you just use? Oh my God, you guys are so gross. <laughs> See, so it happens for real. People do come inside. We'll make you question your political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop Sunday and can be found by searching for BB and BC Podcast via iTunes, Lipson, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and everywhere else you can download quality podcasts from. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at bbnbcpodcast.com. Howdy, folks. Got blood, violence, and You come to the right place. My name is Gary, and I'm your guide to Cinema Beef Podcast. Every episode, we not only deliver film reviews, we also dismantle some of your favorite and most hated films, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Hey, 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 you shut your face! If we want to hear you talk, I will shove my arm up your ass and work him out like a puppet. All right, calm down, calm down. Every show I hope to have a new co-host, podcasters, listeners alike. That's right, I'm talking to you people. I take all comers. You're slapped. That's not very nice. The only rules, well, let's ask the best cooler in the business. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, Take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. Three, be nice. So join the insanity and please vent your frustrations. I'm available on TalkShoe, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. 
remember, here at the Southern Beef Podcast, if you got beef, I've got the grinder. You ungodly warlock.
All right, now we're going to talk about Bad Day at Black Rock from 1955. like this in America, but one town like it is enough. And because I think something kind of bad happened to him, something they can't quite seem to find a handle to. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I know this much. The rule of law has left here and the guerrillas have taken over. Somebody's always looking for something in this part of the West. This place is our West, and I wish they'd leave us alone. I swear you're beginning to make me mad. All strangers do. Hmm? Well, I don't. No. Some do when they come around snooping. Snooping for what? I don't know. Outsiders coming in looking for something. Looking for what? I don't know. Four years ago, something terrible happened here. We did nothing about it. Nothing. Now something terrible is going to happen again. They're going to kill you with no hard feelings. What does he say? Who is this guy anyway? Never heard of him. That's what he says. He checked and there's no John J. McCready. No listing, no record, no information, nothing. Now, nobody like McCready can raise a pretty big stink. Point is, who'd miss a nobody like McCready if he just, uh, say, disappeared? Thought it'd be better if he went out there and got done with it. What can he find out? This is liable to be the hardest $10 you ever earned in your life. I suppose four years from now you'll be sitting around here telling people you haven't forgotten me either. That's real progress. In the meantime, I'll be as dead as a... Why don't you tell me what happened? Directed by John Sturges. Written by Millard Kaufman, Don McGuire, and Howard Breslin. Starring Spencer Tracy as John J. McCready. Robert Ryan as Reno Smith. and Francis as Liz Worth. Dean Jagger as Tim Horn. Walter Brennan as Doc Villay. Uh, John Erickson as Pete Worth. Ernest Bordnine as Coley Trimble. Lee Marvin as Hector David. Russell Collins as Mr. Hastings, and Walter Sandy as Sam. And just get into a quick little synopsis here. 
From the time Jay, John J. McCready steps off the train in Black Rock, he feels a chill from the local residents. The town is only a speck on the map, and few, if any, strangers ever come to the place. McCready himself is tight-lipped about the purpose of his trip, and he finds that the hotel refuses him a room. The local garage refuses to rent him a car, and the sheriff is a useless drunkard. It's apparent that the locals have something to hide, but when he finally tells them that he is there to speak to a Japanese-American farmer named Komoko, he touches nerves so sensitive that he will spend the next 24 hours fighting for his life. And that is from Gary KMCD from IMDB, and I think that kind of does some us sort of summarize the uh, premise quite well. Yeah, um, yeah and uh, actually I'll just go to you right away. Daniel, uh, when's the first time you watched this, and what are your sort of general thoughts on it? This is one that I knew by reputation for quite a while. This is one of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's favorite films, and uh, it informed a lot of Boogie Nights in terms of the way he shot Boogie Nights, just kind of the compositional style. Um, he mentions it a couple of times on the uh, on the commentary track. Also, it uh, features heavily, or at least it features in Martin Scorsese's kind of extended documentary about the history of cinema that he did, God, almost 20 years ago now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it features as uh, sort of the, the birth of the uh, the kind of widescreen format. And, um, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese talked about it. So I knew by reputation for a while. Um, again, this is another one that I saw probably 10 years ago during that period when I was first mm-hmm. kind of visiting a lot of these films for the first time and kind of like going to the effort to do my homework on these. And dear God, you, f- you fall in love with it, right? I mean, yeah, you know, like this is one that I knew by reputation and uh, even knowing it by reputation, it's kind of like, well, it's funny how little people talk about the story of it, you know, in that sense. It's really just sort of like people talk about the visuals and the, and I mean, the visuals are great. The, the mm-hmm. sort of design of the film is amazing. I mean, you just watch the story. I saw it, I, I rewatched it twice this week for the uh, for the podcast. Once uh, Monday and then once last night, just to just sort of uh, revisit it and then to uh, to kind of dig back down into it and, and kind of get another experience of it. And just Tracy's performance, you know, at first seems. Um, I mean, he is playing a a man with a bad arm. He's taken shrapnel in Italy. Um, it takes place uh, just a few months after World War Two, which would have been about ten years before the film was made so you know you kind of yeah it's funny how a film made in 55 is actually set in 45 and you know so you're kind of getting the way that people felt about that immediate post-war period that's a that's kind of a, a subtext of the film but right you know at first it feels like i mean i think on our first watch it felt a little bit like a mannerism heavy kind of performance in the sense of he's definitely drawing attention to the fact that he only has one arm mm-hmm. but there's also the sense of there's actually like a, you know, you can tell there's quite a bit of talent in terms of like striking a matchbook with, you know, one arm. And uh, late in the film, he makes a Molotov cocktail with one arm mm-hmm. in his pocket. I mean, there's a, there's some definitely just a pleasure just from that element of the performance. I love that you don't really know what he's after. You don't really know who he is. I mean, he's a mystery to us as much as he is to the other people in the film, to the, to the people in Black Rock. Right. I love that you get this, it's, you get several extended sequences with the, the kind of people of the town talking about this stuff. They're cagey. They're not really talking about what happened in a, in a way that is both, you know, keeps us in the dark while giving us information, but also, you know, the way that real people would, you know, kind of That's not right, talk they, about it. That's right, because they, yeah, they don't want to talk about the pink elephant in the room. They right. they want to sort of jump around it, you know? Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I was, I was kind of reminded, you know, we watched, like, High Noon and 310 to Yuma, and then earlier we did, um, what time of the West, and you think about, like, the the gang of toughs who just kind of stand around and they, you know, here we actually spend a lot of time with like kind of the bad guys. We spend a lot of time mm-hmm. with the, these characters and we kind of get to know 
who they are, at least in terms of broad caricature. I mean, but um, so so there is a sense of what if in high noon we just hung around with with the three guys who are waiting on the leader of the game, right? For you know half an hour. So that's a really interesting kind of dynamic going on. There are some great conversations in this movie. There are some great like, back and forth that happen, and it all ends on this very. I mean, in a lot of ways, is this kind of bittersweet ending. And, and in some ways, this sort of it's very uh, you know kind of the the saddest happy ending possible in some ways. <laughs> we really don't know you know what this town is really going to be like you know and and you know does this ever make any difference you know what's really going on here? But it's a very simple film. It's only about an hour and twenty one minutes long. It's a very short mm-hmm. film, but it's got a lot of stuff buried in it. Again, this is one like Stagecoach. Um, I think I said this last time. A lot of these films kind of feel like homework, and this doesn't feel. I mean, you, you watch this no. and, and it doesn't. Yeah, you know, I, I I think most people who are interested enough to even like kind of put it on will find it interesting enough to to get involved in it. Um, my wife enjoyed this. My wife she did not enjoy Stagecoach. <laughs> um, she watched Stagecoach with me, and I think you know the the one thing she got out of it was like one of the actors was the voice of one of the characters in Robin Hood. So yeah, the Disney Robin Hood. That's as far as she got into it. But uh, she she was fine watching this twice with me. She was like, oh yeah, that's 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 good. I like that. I like that. I think this movie. I would be hard pressed to think of someone who would not be sucked into this. Honestly, it, it gives the appearance of like a really kind of slow burn movie with nothing happening. And it is a slow burn movie, but a lot happens all the time. There's no fat on this picture at all. Everything leads to something uh, from the get go. There's just this intense tension built because McCready comes in and you don't know what he's about. The townspeople have a secret that's immediately apparent and you don't know what the fucking secret is. And you know that the townspeople are just frightened that McCready might be connected to that to some degree. And they're immediately trying to push him out of this town. They're doing their best to intimidate him. It's a a town with a secret. They know what they did. And I mean, it is, I mean, I, the film doesn't really push on this, but there's certainly kind of an element of, you know, the the whole, and I mean, spoiler alert, this, uh, this town of people like they, I mean, they, they, they murdered the one Japanese-American guy mm-hmm. who lived in this town right after Pearl Harbor. And yeah. that's, the, that's sort of what we find out in the film. And that's kind of the big secret that they're keeping. So many little towns have a buried history like that. Maybe not to this degree to where everybody just kind of agreed to cover it up, right? You know, and yeah. like, we're just going to pretend we don't know or we're going to kind of look the other way. That's sort of what the, the lawman of the town, the sheriff of the town has just decided to... Yeah, we just don't ask too many questions about what really happened there. But there is, I mean, you know, every little town, I mean, so many little towns, I'm not going to say every little town, but so many little towns have ghost stories in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. I saw some uh, ethnographers who had gone through and kind of looking at some of these ghost stories and kind of looked at, you know, and you start asking enough questions and you start kind of like piecing together through old, and a lot of them have a, there's a real history and it's usually like some labor movement, you know, oh, the right. old factory was burned down by the Pinkertons or, you know, there was something <laughs> that happened or something like that. And this is just sort of the nature of America. This is the nature of how we choose to forget our history in some ways is that, you know, the kind of the ghosts of the past, you know, infect the present. There's an extended metaphor, um, not too extended, but there is an extended metaphor about that McCready's coming in and he's going to be the, the, the cure for this disease that ails the town. You know? Right because he's this he's this infection and he's like made the town sick because he's suddenly this you know outside agitator which i mean in mm-hmm. 55 has a very particular meaning as well you know mm-hmm. you know one criticism of this film is that for a film that's ultimately about how bad racism is there are no non-white people in the film yeah you know? yeah we don't, 
we don't get to see either Kamoko in the film, for instance, or you know that's, any of the other characters. The, yeah. Honestly, that that's kind of like my only sort of sticking point with this film at all. And at the same time, I say that understanding the atmosphere that this film must have been under, like at the time it was made, John Sturgis is making a film here that it would not be politically smart to just outright having like a Japanese man murdered on screen. Right. You know, they could, they could have put Mickey Rooney in that uh, breakfast at Tiffany's. Jesus (laughs) Christ. No, no, no. Jesus, man. Um, But I mean, and and I I think John Sturges is honestly, you know, he's recognized as kind of a, more of a progressive director at that time yep. who, you know, who had to work within the sort studio, of the... the studio did not like the implications of this film. Right. And I really, pretty much any film where the studio did not like the implications of this film is probably a pretty good film. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, he had to work within certain constraints here. And yeah. I, as much as I would like it to talk more about sort of the Japanese internment and all that stuff. He touches on it enough to, you know, get the the searchers is made the very next year. And the searchers Mm -hmm. get so much credit for being the, the great movie about race in this period. And the searchers is fucking awful. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a masterpiece, but it's also fucking awful. Like, let's just, you know, Mm -hmm. it's so, um, it it makes so many errors of its own, you know. Where I think we've decided on this podcast to never actually do a review of the search. Yeah, I don't want to touch it. Um, you know, it's just not worth getting into. But Bad Day at Black Rock is kind of you understand the constraints the searches is under, and like they they make the decisions they have to make. It's just sort of you know again from a from a modern viewpoint, it's easy to kind of point at that, and so it's worth mm. kind of at least highlighting. That's I mean that is just kind of the error this film is made in. You can't you know kind of right. blame it necessarily for that. You talk about no people of any sort of other ethnicity except for white in this yeah. kind of makes sense at the same time because this is little like this isn't even really a town like th- this this is this is like three buildings around a train track you know yeah i mean well a lot of these i mean a lot of these towns basically existed to be um i mean this is supposed to be where is this supposed to be i think it's in arizona right something uh yeah the actual, Ari- town, the actual town and this is something i'll, I'll just uh, my wife grew up in um, a little town called Leona Valley, California, and this reminded her exactly of where she grew up. Like she was, just, mm-hmm. like she felt, I think, legitimately homesick watching the film because oh, yeah. even though we looked up exactly where it was shot, and it was a couple of hours from where she grew up, but in that same general area, I mean, this is this is very like that sort of like very like Southern California desert is, is mm-hmm. where this is shot. But it's kind of standing in for some generic middle of fucking nowhere kind of, you know. Right. The reason this exists is because there's some farmland and they need like a spur to, you know, take you somewhere else on the on the, on yeah. the road, you know. The, the the whole town itself is actually just constructed. Like they, they found a railroad uh, location somewhere where it crossed and they just like, okay, we'll build or set around this railroad. Yeah. Um, it, it's actually um, Lone Pine, California. Yeah. Yeah, if so, you go back in time and knock down one of the trees, it becomes twin pines. Sorry. Especially if it's a joke. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Set in nineteen fifty-five, all right. You know, come on. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I watched this for the first time in twenty sixteen and I put it my best of list for that year. The, I mean, I'm not gonna sit here and say I don't love this film yeah. unequivocally. It, it, it is it's fucking great. Spencer Tracy just apparently he was a real dick on the set and he was known he, for being. He, this is this is during his deep alcoholism. Period, yeah, you know, 
you you know the difference between a good time on set and a bad time on set for Spencer Tracy movies of this era if Catherine Hepburn was around. Yeah, she was basically she was they didn't marry, but she was effectively like his spouse and she called him on his shit all the time Well, she called him on his shit but she also like took care of him and she Mm -hmm. like you know she would go and bitch out directors sorry i hate to use the gendered language there but she would go and like you know yell at directors and make sure that they were giving the big star this man that she loved spencer tracy the space that he needed to kind of take care of himself and um you know to, to kind of be the best person he could be. So there's a there's a lot of films of this era, you know, when you see Tracy and Hepburn together, that's how you know there's like an, a real like uh, camaraderie on set. You know, yeah. here, um, I mean, he kind of, he kind of got like kind of bullied into doing this. I mean, they sort of like the reason he didn't want to do it. Yeah. In the film was because the, uh, the, the producer was like, yeah, <laughs> any actor will like, you know, give his left arm to play a crip, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, the, I, apparently, Spencer Tracy had to be sort of prodded into this, right? Because he yeah. he didn't want to do it, and this was his last film contractually. For uh, was it was it MGM or uh... yeah, yeah, MG, you know, MGM. This this was the last one he did, except for narration for How the West Was Won in '62. Yeah. But um, I mean, he didn't want to do it, and they were like, okay, well, we sent the script to Alan Ladd, and Alan Ladd will fucking do it. And apparently, <laughs> that kind of got his coat up a little bit and but yeah spencer tracy here like he just man just well the acting you here you don't quite know where we're used to these films in which i mean you know the, these kind of western films in which it's like a you know two tough basically the western genre is built on two tough guys staring at each other right you know until there's a shootout at the end that's the you know that that's mm-hmm. the western genre in a nutshell well here you got your big antagonist, Robert so Ryan. Up. He take you know, he basically just talks his way into a room. He just sort of takes a hotel room. Uh, Robert Ryan, you know, he's just he he decides he's going to just see how tough he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he tests him. He tests him, doesn't he? Like throughout the whole film, he tests him. He he sends his guys against him. He 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 spars with him verbally, and he, he's just like testing. Like, what what does this guy know? What is he going to do? Is he going to be a problem for me? And the thing is, he doesn't know anything. Like, yeah. he walks in, he knows nothing. He's a nobody. He's just some guy, you know? Yep. But, I mean, Robert Ryan, like, he's challenging him. He, he's basically like, well, I'm going to take your room, and if you're not a, if you're a real man... You oh, that's, that's, Lee, that's Lee Marvin in, in that. Oh, that's Lee, is that yeah. Lee Marvin? All right. yeah, that's, yeah, Lee Marvin's like... Oh, God, and Lee Marvin's so fucking my, good. My favorite, my favorite thing, one of my favorite things in the film is just watching Lee Marvin stand in this film. God <laughs> like, damn, yeah. The thing with his, like, he's got his boots kind of up, is is, is, is he like, not like is he not like the bad version of Clint Eastwood basically in this movie? Yeah. Like he, he he's the Clint Eastwood who's a piece of shit. Yeah, the twenty seventeen Clint Eastwood as opposed to the nineteen sixty seven Clint Eastwood. <laughs> he's like the real life Clint Eastwood. You're like today, you know, just kind of <laughs> just kind of an asshole. You know? Yeah, no, I I love that sequence where he where they are kind of testing his metal, and then when you. Uh, this was Tracy. Like he rents a car from Anne Francis, yeah, who is lovely and uh, isn't in enough of this film, but what she's that's in yeah, is quite good. You know, he drives up there and he kind of puts it together. He's like, "Oh, burned out shack. There's a grave here." And then when he comes back, he he's kind of has this conversation like, "Oh man, there are wildflowers growing out there, and you know that's got to be a grave. I mean, it couldn't possibly be human because there's no marker there. So I mean, clearly." Right. You know, and it, it is such a, he knows, he's figuring it out. He knows fucking what happened. 
Mm-hmm. But he knows he he's not he's not really going to talk about. It. He doesn't know who's going to be on, the, on his side. And in the end, he ends up he gets uh you know it's like the the sheriff who's I mean just a coward. I mean yes yeah, he's, yeah he's, he's a drunk coward. Yep. And uh, and the doctor, the local doctor, who um, is just kind of like I'm here. I get him coming and going, and that's that's my yeah, job. Yeah, you know. I mean, yeah, the doctor. He's just he's basically just been bullied into a corner. Like you know. He's not necessarily a coward, but he's he just has no recourse at all. To... Well, he has no. I mean, he's just I mean, he does what so many of us do and just kind of accept the right status quo. Well, it's just status quo. It's just well, yeah. what am I going to do if the mm-hmm. sheriff isn't going to do anything? And I like, what am I going to go and like kill all these guys? Am I going to yeah? Like, like, like is, 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 is he going to punch it out with fucking Ernest Borgnine? No, that's not right. going to happen. Oh man, I love Ernest Borgnine in this film too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, fuck. First off, Robert Ryan, he's just fucking pure evil in this film. Like, yep. he's just so disgusting. Probably my favorite Robert Ryan performance, and that's saying something because I, I kind of exalt him as one of the all time great actors. Um, what else is he in? I don't really know him from other. He's stuff. been in so many. He's he, he's in uh, the Wild Bunch. The he's the guy who hunts down the gang in the Wild Bunch. Right. That's the thing about this film. Everybody in it is is somebody who's been in about a million other things. Like you watch right. this film and you go, Oh shit, fucking Robert Ryan. He's been in all these films. Uh, Ernest Borgnine, well, of course. Really like so many of these people who have been in a bunch of other things, but like, not like some big iconic like role. Yeah, know? no, it, it, it's all character actor stuff here. Yeah. Right. Like, and I mean, Lee Marvin became a star, but at the same time, he's kind of a character actor at the same time. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I know Lee Marvin mostly from uh point blank, you know, and that's mm-hmm. kind of the, you know, yeah, the big I think of them. But yeah, to, to see like a young Lee Marvin here, just being intimidating and lanky, and just he—he's like the real threat of the gang. He's—he's he's the right. guy that they actually have to take out uh, really quickly to, to get rid of him. Ernest Borgnine here as this gleeful fucking bully yeah. who enjoys being a fucking bully and a piece of shit, and fucking well, that scene, watching that scene in the little diner, you know, where mm-hmm. uh, you know they serve chili with beans. So what else do you have? Chili without beans. Right. No, yeah. <laughs> like, no, that's another amazing piece of dialogue. Like, there's so much great stuff in this. Like yeah. the dialogue. And then Ernest Borgnine comes in. Oh, you're you're sitting on my stool. And then Spencer Tracy moves over to the next stool. And then, and then he, Ernest Borgnine sits on the stool. And says, "I don't like how the stool feels." And then Spencer Tracy finally gets fed up. And is like, "Well, why don't you tell me where to sit?" And well, which is which is you know when somebody. I mean that is a. And that's a great response to that in that mm-hmm. moment, right? Because it is, well, look, I'm not challenging you. You're challenging, you're, you're right. doing this bullshit to me. And it's sort of like playing the room, right? It's sort of like, like, <sighs> look, if you, if you want to pretend like this is the thing you're, you're fucking with me on. Okay. You tell me where you want me to sit. It's funny how Spencer Tracy is sort of the, the Western hero, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. He has this, he's not going to sweat the small stuff, right? He's yep. like, look, you want to come and be the big swinging dick. Come be the swinging dick. I don't give a shit. I'm, you know, I'm 60 years old. I just fought. In the, I mean, he, I mean, you, you think this guy is like at that age and he he just came back from the fucking war. And you think about like, we don't really get any context into who this guy is in, mm-hmm. in his history, you know, but you got to think this guy probably fought in the first world war. He's, yeah. you know, lived, he's lived a full life. You don't even really know his background. You don't know what he does for a living. He's just a guy who's trying to pay his respects to the man who saved you his get, life. You get the you sense know? that this guy, the way he talks, you get the sense he had, he has money. Yeah. Uh, so he, he, he is ready to retire. He says that much in, in, in the movie. 
I was ready to just escape from humanity and go to some tropic island and live the rest of my life there, right? But I, I owed it to uh, Komoko or whatever to uh, bring this medal back from his son and, and give it to him. And then he runs into the situation where Komoko's dead and is, well, I'm not going to fucking step away. I'm not going to yeah. step back. And well, I, but he, 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 like, once he, he's almost run off the road by Ernest Bergnine, and his response is, look, I, I've done my, I mean, I'm, I'm going to leave, you know? He, he was trying to, to leave. You know, I don't know if his plan was I'm going to come back with some reinforcements or what. I mean, you kind of imagine maybe it was because of, you know, kind of the way the film right. ends. But, but they, 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 he's not itching for a fight here. That's the thing. He's kind of forced into it. And I think that that's the interesting thing um, when you see him kind of, he picks his battles and he really only fights when he has. Right. And, this, and is, this is a very not Western hero kind of thing to do. You know, yeah. your traditional Western hero, particularly in 55, any slight, I'm just gonna like shoot you. Yeah, <laughs> you know? like, yeah. No, no. It, it's a great character because uh, he uses karate. He he uses karate strikes in, in 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 when when he actually gets in a fight. So he actually comes from that tradition of non confrontation. It, it's it's basically if someone comes at you, then you use that technique to fight them. Right? Like right, it, right. it's very. It's a, and he's kind of the ultimate fucking badass. But he's the non-confrontational ultimate badass because he doesn't take shit from anybody. But at the same time, he knows how to manipulate all these dumb toughs. He he just talks his way around these people. Ernest Barnine. I, I love that he pulled like he he beats up Ernest Barnine in the in the in the in the diner, and then pulls the knife out of his pocket and goes, mm-hmm. "What? Well, you, you're gonna stab me in the back?" You right. Know? You know, then like he talks to him, and then just throws the knife away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I'm like, not. it's like, yeah, go, go, go ahead, dare I fucking dare you to pick that up and go after this. Me. Is, this is a Western hero without a gun. Mm-hmm. Like, let's keep that in mind. You know, at no point in this film does Spencer Tracy hold a gun. Yeah. He makes a uh, of cocktail <laughs> and uh, burns the guy alive. But uh, yeah, you know, uh, uh, apparently the source material for this, because I, I believe this was a novel of some sort. Apparently, he, apparently he does pull a gun at some point in the actual source material, oh, from what I understand. It's but, uh, um, adapted from the short story "Bad Time at Honda" by yeah. Howard Breslin, and and they and they changed that because um, it was originally going to be called that as a film, but uh, it, w- it would have conflicted with John Wayne's Hondo, which was no, released no. around the same time. <laughs> uh, but but yeah yeah fucking. This this performance from Spencer Tracy is just so great. Yeah. You just get sucked in, and you get sucked into the conversations he has. Like the sparring battles in this are so good. It feels like it's a slow burn, but all the time something's happening. There's a conversation. Oh, there's, that, that, there's that conversation he has with Robert Ryan where he's like, mm-hmm. he can't get a, uh, a ride. He can't get a Jeep, right? And he's just kind of sitting there, and he's basically just playing in the dirt, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, <laughs> Robert Ryan's like, uh, you know, I feel like a man is only as big as is as big as what what makes him mad, and nothing nothing around here seems big enough to make you mad. And um, yeah, that's a I mean that's that's a really good place to be, honestly. Is nothing mm-hmm. around here is big enough to make me mad. And uh, you know, Spencer Tracy's yeah. response immediately is seems like a lot makes you you know it seems like you're mad yeah. all the time, right? You know, yeah, yeah. What 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 about Komoko? And then immediately he draws it out of him. Well, those Japanese are savages. Yeah, yeah, no. It's a, I mean, and and yet it doesn't, it doesn't, especially for 55, you know, it Mm -hmm. doesn't feel like an unsophisticated portrait of sort of the the rabid racist, right? You know, this isn't a guy like wearing like a clan hood or whatever. This is, 
it feels like something. I mean, this feels like, I mean, it feels like a guy you can know in your day-to-day life. It mm-hmm. feels like another sort of oh, no. this guy you'd you'd sit and you'd drink whiskey with him and, and everything would be fine. Except oh, no, uh, talking yeah. gaps, right? You yeah, know, yeah, like, no, yeah, no, I was gonna bring this up. I mean, both both you and I come from very rural backgrounds. I mean, these are people we know growing up with in town. Like the, yeah. these are these are the locals that like I mean, not all of them are just, you know, dyed in the wool clan members. It's it's just kind of that sort of inborn kind of small town fear of strangers kind of thing. And after Pearl Harbor, that's mm-hmm. sort of like, I mean, that, I mean, the, the idea is, um, you know, Kamoko moved into town a few months before Pearl Harbor and then Pearl Harbor happened. And then his response is, man, you look at what these people did in Corregidor and, you know, he's got, you know, the Batan March mm-hmm. and you know, all that sort of shit. And look at, look at the terrible things the Japanese did. And like, how can you defend these people? And I mean, change the setting to 2004 <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, it's like it, the, the same it, conversations. It, I mean, it's the same on, thing, you know. Yeah. Like, come on, nine eleven happened, and like, look at these fucking people throwing mm-hmm. gay people off of buildings. And how can you think that these brown people are? It's the same fucking thing. This hasn't yep. changed, you know. Yep, it's um, the same same mentality, and they they just those, those people again have a voice in twenty seventeen. It's yeah, it, it, it's exactly the same bullshit. Yeah, it's it's, it's very disheartening. Right, <laughs> but we're I in twenty eighteen. The more more... The, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. The eternal, the eternal xenophobia, you know, built around this, uh, you know. Uh, anyway. Yeah. We don't need, but I mean, the the film. I mean, what I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that even though there are no like people of color in the film, it's a more sophisticated portrait of the kind of racism and where it comes from mm-hmm. than most other films of its of the period and even today. I mean, today you'd make him essentially a you know sort of a hardcore neo-Nazi or something, you know, right? Like you know, but but the film is smarter than that. It knows that that's not really what's going on, and um, I think yeah. that's that's one of the elements that I really like in the film. Yeah, no, th- this is one of the smartest and one of just the best put together kind of noir slash westerns I've seen ever. Like it, everything here is on point. All the characters are great. All the acting is fucking great. Um, like there's not a bad performance in this at all. I mean, if, if anything, the only sort of negative is that Anne Francis' character doesn't get enough to do. Yeah, and kind of just like a vic ends up a victim of the struggle of a bunch of uh, dudes. Well, she, she, she makes her decision. I mean, you know, one of the things, I mean, there is a, if there's, if there's a noir element of the film and it kind of, if there is a, so there's a genre mixing aspect. And I think the Anne Francis character is the, the best way. This fatal, right? yeah. Where she starts off as sort of the Western girl, right? So mm-hmm. like it is, she's going to be the supportive female character to the hero sort of thing. And then in the end, she ends up being the film fatal. And yep. she dies for her for her sin. And I mean, you know, it's it, you know, she's one of the few characters who actually dies in the film. Yeah. And, and then you can, a little you can make the misogyny argument, you know what I mean, I don't know, it's not worth really going into in detail. Yeah, I'm I'm not I'm honestly not doing that. I'm just I'm just saying it's it's, it's kind of funny that, you know, fifty five oh the female character kind of a throwaway. But but, but at the she same gets, time it's she like gets one of the great moments in the film, honestly, because she gets to be the person who realizes too late that she's throwing her a lot with the wrong team. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, she, she gets that realization and that's also really great for just solidifying what an evil piece of shit Robert Ryan is. Cause he goes the extra mile. I got to kill you too. Cause you're, well, and I love his, I love his response. I love his ideas. Like, you know, well, you know, McCready told me, 
<laughs> yeah, my one mistake was letting two people live. You know, <laughs> like God, fuck you, and, man. Yeah, and, and and McCready has his number too because in the bar scene where where he ends up fighting Ernest Borgnine, he's how many other your guys are going to fall under under your you know how many of these other guys you're going to kill afterwards? You know, like yeah. if you if you kill me and get rid of me. Uh, when are you going to kill Ernest Borgnine? When are you going to kill Lee Marvin? Because all these guys are fucking... They're, they're going to break. They're going to crack. And they're going to fucking tell on you eventually. Well, it, and that's a that's a strategy, honestly. If you mm-hmm. find yourself in this situation, draw the divisions between these fuckers. Like, yeah. you know, and make them kind of fight each other is, is actually a really good strategy. Um, it doesn't really play on the film that way. Yeah, that's the, the thing. Film, you know, the film doesn't... But that's a, you know, that's definitely a, a thing. Like these kinds of things are held together by the most tenuous threads of self-interest. And the second Bergnine thinks it's not going to be in his best interest to keep playing for Robert Ryan, he's going to sing like a canary, motherfucker. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, Ernest, Ernest Bergnine would have been the first one. Well, actually, the uh, the guy at the train station, he would have been the first guy. To oh, yeah. I mean, you get a feeling he feels bad about it, but not so bad he's not going to do whatever right. he's kind of told to do. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and I mean, the sheriff, you, you you can tell he he's conflicted and he knows, but at the same time, he's a drunk and a coward. And I think I think the sheriff, my, my read on the sheriff is that he's chosen not to know. Like that's the, yeah, that's the thing because he in his really dialogue, it's like, "What do you tell me? What happened?" You know, yeah. like yeah. Like, I mean, he, he 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 knows there's something fishy. He knows the guy was killed. He knows that that fire was not set. You know, mm-hmm. on, on accident. I mean, they say don't they say something like some kids set the fire or something? Right. Like that? Yeah. They they say he was sent there to the internment no camp and oh, then a bunch of kids. It's sort of one of those, the production design is kind of telling a story and the script is in some ways telling a different story. Like, I think we're supposed to think this town is a little bit more than just a fuel depot for the train, right? Well, I mean, you you get the, like, you you look at the town, and this is another uh, thing in production, by the way. Um, They originally wanted more people as extras in the town, but they felt like there was too many people. And even then, even when you watch it as it is, it feels like there's too many people in this town because there's like five buildings in the fucking town. But you, you get the idea that this is sort of the central hub of like a bunch of farms and other yeah. things that are, you well, know. They, they even say that in the um, in the hotel, you know, the whole thing is like, well, we keep a bunch of rooms for the ranchers to come in. and Right. Basically, the harvest comes in and they spend like a bunch of money just coming and pampering themselves. And so yeah. you kind of get the feeling maybe there's, you know, once a year we get a big, not tourist trade, but we get the farmers coming in. And, you know, I mean, really in a, in a traditional Western to be a whorehouse, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the whole, like that's the whole thing, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of, kind of honestly surprised that's not in here. <laughs> I mean, I think it would just be a distraction from the from the point of the film at this yeah, point. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. But I think it also kind of plays on that. This is sort of a Western and sort of a noir. Because mm-hmm. in a noir film, it would be sort of the hotel that's sort of at the center of everything, you know, where people are kind of coming and going. It would, it would kind of feel so, and it does kind of become a, a central location. And God, some of the the deep focus like shots in that hotel lobby area, where you get basically Sturgis. I mean, from a modern perspective, again, I think it's easy to overlook just how kind of sophisticated the framing is, mm-hmm. but. The idea of Sturgis frames it, frames it. He uses the widescreen format to his best. I hate to see a pan and scan version of this film, by the way, but you know he uses the frame so he can just put everybody there and let them all talk, and we can just watch the thing unfold. So there's a little bit of a, a kind of a um, 
proceeding apparently the, kind of staging, staging there, you know? Yeah, and apparently this was shot in both. Like It was shot in 4x3, and then it was widescreen as well. And, and the, apparently the widescreen was not released for, like, a long fucking time. Apparently, for the, the longest time, all you could get was 4x3 for this. Because they, they, they weren't sure how they wanted to release this film originally, apparently. Um, oh, I didn't... I, I This is something I actually did not know. Yeah. I, I'd actually like to see the 4x3 then, because it sounds like what they did was they basically shot it anamorphic then, where mm. they shot a sort of... Like, so you just get, like, extended ceilings and floors. Right. And the sort of... yeah, And then so... Basically, you have this kind of widescreen with just sort of like a bunch of empty space where, you know, but no, this is a film. I mean, clearly it lives in in 16 by 9. I mean, there's just Mm -hmm. no you get why. I mean, everybody knows everybody who listens to this podcast knows I'm a big Paul Thomas Anderson fan. Right. Like, you know, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. um, you look at some of the compositions and like there will be blood and like some of the compositions in this. And it's, it's the same fucking thing. He's he's just, you know advanced it and kind of made it his own again but i mean yeah even the shot of the um the sheriff kind of lying on the cot in the um in the jail. i i I, lo- I love how he's essentially uh he's a permanent resident of his own drunk tank yeah he just, <laughs> he just kind of hangs out in the jail yeah. i mean look this is this is i mean a tiny town like this i mean he's the sheriff he gets paid to just keep the order but like what the fuck is he gonna do i mean he isn't really in charge he's not really doing his he doesn't want trouble we had trouble four years ago i don't want it again his job is to look the other way yeah he gets paid to look the other way and that pays his booze budget and what else are you gonna i mean what is he gonna do but yeah but i mean the best thing is the performances really suss it out where you get a three-dimensional feel for the character where you you know the sheriff feels really ashamed and bad about the fact that he's a piece of shit <laughs> you know like you, you gotta, you, you've got to ask yourself like was he an alcoholic before the uh before this happened right you know? yeah like and maybe that's the thing that kind of you know again today we would get a a conversation you mm-hmm. know that explained everything and i'm not even saying that that kind of depth is necessarily bad but the beauty of a of this era the beauty of an 81 minute film in 1955 is like we don't we don't need it we can just sort of question it and just kind of go along and, and it, it can kind of exist in our, the viewer's mind kind of defining yeah. this, you know, but it's also like, well, okay, we got the drunk and the sheriff and we got, I mean, these are like stereotypes and caricatures to a degree. They're not one note and they're not two dimensional. Well, they're, they're yeah, no, that, life by the performers. You know? That's the thing. I mean, these are uh, stock noir and Western characters, but there's just so many great a- actors in this film and they're all given time to do something just like Lee Marvin doesn't have that many lines, but physically, he's amazing in this film where you just, you get a total sense of his character and what he's about. And he's, he's so fucking good. Robert Ryan is so fucking menacing as this sort of, Hey, how you doing? Kind of bad guy. Who's trying to, you know, get into your mind and find out what the fuck you're about and, and how he can manipulate that. Ernest Borgnine is like quintessential fucking big screen bully in this film. Everybody here is fucking just sort of firing off in all cylinders for the most part. And they take those sort of stock characters and they just... There's not a weak performance and that's kind of the thing. No, yeah. And the film doesn't wear out its welcome with that as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, every scene has a purpose and has a a, uh, definite beginning and end to to sort of like move us forward in this narrative. I mean, it's... Right. um, It's probably overkill to say it's propulsive because it's not like i'm not like kind of 
on the edge of my seat watching it, but it's definitely doing something where it's really trying to sort of tell the story in the most economical way and a greater emphasis on a sort of psychological complexity or a sort of backstory would just uh, take away from that purity of that spirit, you know, because ultimately, I mean, the whole thing is McCready doesn't know anything more about this town than what he sees. Mm -hmm. And the town doesn't know anything more about McCready than what they see. And so ultimately we as an audience are sort of left in this sort of mutual dark on that. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. What matters is what these people do rather than, you know, sort of the motivation. Yeah. We're, we're, we're drunk. Basically. I mean, the whole thing, you know, the opening credit sequence happens and then McCready gets off the train and then the film ends with him getting back on the next train. Mm-hmm. Like this is, you know, Bad Day at Black Rock is a literal title. He yeah. spends one day in Black Rock and it's yeah. a bad day and then he <laughs> leaves. And that's that's all we need to know. It's yeah. done. You know? The viewer gets all their uh, suspicions and conjecture from McCready and the townspeople. Like you, you go back and forth between their perspectives and you you go along with them, and that's the thing. The movie draws you along with them, and it, it, it's not it's not one of those sort of tense, nail biting kind of thrillers. It, it is slow in the sense that it sort of moves at its own pace, but it does draw you along because you want to fucking know, and you're constantly guessing with these characters about what the fuck's going on. And then once you finally get to it, where it's like, oh shit, okay, I know what's going on now. Then you just want to see fucking Spencer Tracy fuck these people up and get some yeah. justice. And, and he, he does. Robert Ryan uh, falls to a ironic fate. Uh, you know, he gets burnt alive just like Kamoko does, but he survives it. And I mean, a uh, Molotov cocktail as well, and which is, mm-hmm. I mean, you got to, you watch Spencer Tracy in a movie set in late 1945, make a Molotov cocktail, and you think, how many of those did you make in, uh, in Italy? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. No, and it, 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 he seems, this seems to be something he knows how to do very quickly. You know yeah, what I mean? No, yeah, and, and, and that's a great physical performance, too, because he's got to use one arm to do that shit. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you're right. Again, his mannerisms, just where he... You know, Spencer Tracy's just such a great actor where it's, I'm going to act around the fact that I only have one arm. And he does it. Like, everything he does, just the little things he fucking does is so fucking good. Uh, apparently, with the Molotov cocktail scene, uh, originally John Sturges wanted him to uh, just strike a match. But apparently, Spencer Tracy couldn't do it with one arm. So it was like, I need a lighter. <laughs> I need a fucking lighter to light this shit. I was like, all right, we'll give him a lighter. Because apparently that was kind of authentic anyway. Like, apparently... um Everybody sort of came back from World War II was uh, uh, accustomed to using lighters, I guess. Yeah. Uh, apparently that was a thing. I, I, I don't know. But, well, uh, matches, matches get wet in the rain, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, I can imagine. I mean, you know, I don't know. That might be historically, like, that's when people started carrying lighters to set of matchbooks around, you know? So Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, both of us kind of highest recommendation for this oh, film. If yeah. you if you've gotten this far and you're like, maybe I don't want to see this film. <laughs> what why are you listening to this podcast? Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. It's a classic. Uh, it's one of the I mean, it's almost and, and I it's not that the film isn't a masterpiece. It's not that the film isn't like amazing. Mm-hmm. But it's almost one that I I want people to have not listened to this and see. 
Mm-hmm. I want I want it to hit people. I want it to really kind of become like a thing, you know, because I think, yeah, you know, I do love the film. I, I don't think it's, uh, I mean, I want the film to hit even harder than it does. I want it to be even more overt than it is. I want it to kind of be, right. but it's not in 1955. It couldn't be right. Yeah. You know? um, but it, it really stinks up on you, particularly, I mean, if you see it once and you're kind of, yeah, I don't know watch it again give it six months and watch it again it's 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 worth a it's worth a watch it's worth a rewatch and i i think it gets you thinking i mean even the stuff it can't say and do john sturgis was just that good of a director where you still get where he was going with this film you know yeah he he's talking about some really deep problems in american society at the time that yeah. actually still sadly exist today but i mean he was hinting at a lot of stuff that you just couldn't overtly say back then and yeah th- th- this is definitely a movie and it's that's not cool. unique i mean i think we might have implied it's sort of like a small town thing not unique to small towns no, no 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 you know yeah it, it's a men- it's a mentality it's not and that mentality is not uh sort of it is it, not in one location it's not just small town mentality it's just oh. a mentality um yeah couple little trivia things here i'll throw in Ernest made Bor- money that's one thing no so made money budget was 1.2 million and it made point 3.7 million so that's pretty fucking great for back then uh yeah you, you got to think the advertising didn't cost shit back then so uh yeah, yeah. I mean, they don't do twenty million dollar ad campaigns or like <laughs> a third of the budget. You know, like the, yeah. the Star Wars movie is like two hundred million dollar film plus two hundred million dollar ad campaign. You know, right. now. I mean, their ad campaigns were like posters and trailers. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And there's this uh, new thing called TV, and they will <laughs> the commercial yeah. on there. I mean, they will advertise it. You know, one time, not not in not in fifty five. They wouldn't even done that. It would have been like you know. This program was um, sponsored by Bad Day at Black Rock. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, Daniel, hadn't you heard TV is going to kill movies? Yeah, no, there will be no more movies. Like, you know, speaking in 1955, in, in like 10 years, there will be no such thing as a movie anymore. Mm-hmm. It's all going to yeah. be TV, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, The music was done by Andre Preven, by the way. Um, I don't know. I I'm not a big fan of the score for this, honestly. Like yeah, I, 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 it's it's kind it's of forgettable. forgettable. It, yeah, it's kind of like standard fifties, but at the same time, there's a little hint there of connective tissue. There's that sort of uh, military kind of beat throughout. I like that piece. like kind of opening sequence music, like the sort of, mm-hmm. and I also like uh, this is one of the things. I mean, a movie again, a, a western in fifty five. Like this sort of traditional thing, like High Noon, you know, where you have the theme song that explains mm-hmm. everything in the film. Um, not so, not something they did for this, you know. Yeah. Which um, betrays its sort of like a noirish, you know, sort of sort of leanings. Uh, yeah. But also gives it that sort of like we don't really know where things are going, you know. I mean, right. can you imagine the film started with you know, he came from out of nowhere. <laughs> He needs a hotel room to stay, you know, like, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I apologize to our listeners for my terrible, like, improvised lyrics and performance there. But, you know, a man with one arm chopped, Ernest Bornine in the neck. <laughs> and in the end, Anne Francis dies. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that would have, oh, God, I'm glad they didn't do that. <laughs> Um, 
So uh, Ernest Bornine did do his own stunts in this. Spencer Tracy didn't do his uh, fight stunts because apparently uh, he hit too hard. <laughs> that's the, I, like, I kind of love that. I kind of love that. Yeah, it's not a joke. Apparently, he went to Sturgis and said, uh, "If I do my own stunts, I'm going to hit these people too hard." So Sturgis is like, "Okay, well, we'll we'll do a stunt double for you then." <laughs> uh, apparently, even, apparently, even then, I think the stunt double actually uh, broke Ernest Bornheim's nose when he did the knee lift to his to his head. Oh, I um, believe it. I mean, yeah, that, but, I mean, yeah. that whole sequence looks like it fucking hurts, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, but but Ernest, we're, not, we're not fucking around at that point. <laughs> no, no, no. But Bornheim did his own stunts for the crash through the door. Um, apparently he was expecting it to swing open, uh, but Sturgis had it uh, nailed shut, and it was oh. Bornine's. Uh, it was Bornine's own uh, momentum that took him through that fucking door. <laughs> right. that, that's that's kind of astonishing. Also, again, another searcher searcher thing. I mean, searchers is in the next year, and yeah. yet we still get a like shot through the door, which right. we always think of. I mean, today that's always a searcher's reference, but yeah, this that like was... predates that, and yet uh, is. I mean, as much as I love that moment in the searcher, it's like it's sort of the better moment, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, <laughs> and Bert, yeah, just Bornine like trying to collect himself, and like he's still stuck in the door with his feet and shit, and he's got to step out of it and shit. Uh, apparently, Bornine never forgave him for that. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> um, I, I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't blame Sturgis for doing it, and I don't blame Bornine for never forgiving him. <laughs> like, honestly, that's um, on that. Yeah, so uh, although, you know, Spencer Tracy was uh, drinking heavily at this point, he was a full-blown alcoholic, apparently. Um, apparently, he didn't drink while he was shooting. Uh, he, he he sort of reserved that for after the day was done for shooting. Sure. Uh, so so apparently, uh, he was always inviting people up to his uh, hotel after shooting to uh, have some cocktails. Um, <laughs> uh, although apparently he was mostly drinking seven up at the time when he was inviting people to his hotel room, but uh, Ernest Bornheim was saying it was too hot, too damn hot to party during the day. Uh, and even though they shot in, um, I think July, uh, for where they were oh, shooting, wow. it tried to avoid the like 125 degree Fahrenheit heat, they were still getting like upwards of 100 at that point. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, Whether in California, no, that's that's, I mean, yeah, that's. I can't. I don't. I don't even want to be there in July, much less have to like do anything productive. Yeah, yeah. And just another thing to mention: uh, Lee Marvin, Ernest Bornine, and Robert Ryan would uh, co-star in the Dirty Dozen in '67. So uh, you get that little connection there. A bunch yeah. of great character actors just sort of coming together again in another film. But yeah, I, I, I think that's about it. Uh, we'll yeah, see I'm done. I, I, feel yeah. Like, I feel like we covered it. I feel like we did. I mean, I feel. I mean, I. I I love the episode we did on High Noon where we kind of did the alternate reading on it. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to do an alternate reading. Like, I want to, I, I mean, I could give you the fast reading if you want to know, like, the racist <laughs> reading on this. Like, I could do that. But I kind of don't want that to be a part of this episode. No, the, you know? Well, this feels like the, this feels like the High Noon where, you know, it is, Spencer, it is, Spencer, it is what it is. You know? Spencer Tracy is actually the good guy, you know? Spencer Tracy, I mean, Spencer Tracy is the good guy. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong, you know? Um, so I feel I feel like I want to I wanna just leave it there. But, yeah, let's, uh, leave, yeah, let's no. leave it there. So, uh, Daniel, tell people where they can find you on the interwebs. Uh, before I do that, I do want to apologize. I did have a little bit of a cold, and uh, hopefully that didn't come across too hard in the uh, in the uh, recording here. I've been uh, muting the microphone and coughing when I needed to, so apologies. It sounded more gruff audience. and more like a man. 
Yeah, which is clearly <laughs> a thing that I care about for this podcast. Yeah, it's, and clearly, it, it, um, it's, it's really the theme of this podcast. Yeah. Squarely in the, uh, I'm going to beat up Spencer Tracy in a, in, a, in a bar. You know, I'm the Ernest Borgnine of this podcast. Anyway, right. um, go check me out on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Lee Harper. Everything I do goes up there. I do a podcast called Wrong with Authority, which is a, a podcast about movies about history and the history those movies are about. Uh, we just put up an episode called, uh, well, I forget what I called it, but it's about Inherit the Wind, right? Um, which also stars Spencer Tracy. Mm-hmm. And I do that with my three British friends, all of whom have been on this podcast. Uh, so I actually, I edited that episode and I think it's pretty good. So go check it out. It's, it's, it's a, it's a worthy conversation about Spencer Tracy and uh, that movie was made in 1960. I mean, it's a, it's funny that we're doing them so kind of back to back, you know, in terms of because we recorded it a while ago, but I finally like edited it and put it up. And yeah. This, yeah. But um, yeah, if you like us talking about Spencer Tracy, go check out Wrong with Authority 6 because we have a lot to say about um, that film as well. And it's sort of place in history in the Skills Monkey trial. And my British friends all fuck with me about my history and researching <laughs> creationism. So go check that out. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, you're bringing always place. Oh, spaceman back too soon, aren't you? I think that's happening. Um, we were gonna—I mean, we were gonna record, and then I just got tired. So you know, hopefully, in the next couple of weeks, we'll we'll have some new episodes where yeah, I'm dipping my toes back into actually putting out a productive product. And um, I mean, I know this is like a sort of bad juju, you know, that's something you're not supposed to say. But I think I'm gonna end up starting a Patreon, trying to get some money out of, uh, you know, uh, putting out stuff for people to listen to and read. Um, and I'm going to start writing again too. And um, that might end up being something that ends up being more of a big project. I mean, it's probably a book, but um, we'll probably end up publishing it somewhere and like kind of in progress. But that's the, that's the thing I've been working on in 2017, but it's 2018 now and it's time to buckle down and start writing. So, right. you know, more stuff is coming for me. I've been a little bit uh, reclusive in 2017, but that's because I've got big things coming down the pike. So there you go. Yeah. But yeah, go follow me on Daniel Lee, at Daniel Lee Harper on Twitter. That's kind of where I am more than I'm not. That's that's the easiest way to get a hold of me if you want to say hi. Cool. And you can, of course you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find all our links there to our YouTube, iTunes, slash Apple Podcasts, and our Facebook. Uh, go to our Facebook group. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook. That's the single best way to get in contact with us, find out what's going on with the podcast, and that's basically the best place. Leave comments, leave suggestions for movies for us to watch and all that shit. Next episode is going to be our best first time watches of 2017 i put it out on the facebook for people to leave their lists one person has done so so far uh, i'm going to reiterate this that uh if you want to leave it on the facebook page you can do so because we don't get enough traffic on the facebook page where i'd lose it so i can definitely easily find it on the wall if you want to do that but basically you know you're top or 10, you can top... or you can tweet it at us dm us do whatever like if, if right. you want it's it we will talk about it. It's fine. Like, yeah. Um, if if you want to email it to me, um, hoaglyreviews at gmail.com. I'll just leave the link in the show notes. Also, um, if you don't want to write a list, if you want to leave an MP3 recording of your best films, first time watches for 2017. So, of course, it could be anything 
that you've watched in 2017. It could be a movie from 1921 or whatever, as long as it's a first time watch. If you saw Nosferatu for the first time in 2017, mm-hmm. after we recorded on it, and want to talk about that in an MP3 format and say that was the one good film you saw in 2017. We will play your audio on our show. Exactly, yeah. Um, you don't have to have a top ten list. It doesn't have to be a top five. It could be three films, one film, whatever. Whatever you want any, to talk any, about. Anything anything you liked or didn't like. I think that's another thing. Mm-hmm. Like, worst of is also acceptable. Yeah. Hey, I saw Austin Powers for the first time in 2017. <laughs> and dear God, is that movie a piece of shit? Completely reasonable <laughs> thing to play for us. Yeah, you know? uh, so I mean... Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, the the show we we have our lists and we're going to talk about them, of course. And we but... check it twice, but we're going to yeah. tell you if you're not already nice, not you're nice. Yeah, next but, week uh, on this podcast. But yeah, we're we're looking forward to listener contributions here to basically make this show a bit more interesting and have some more conversations coming out. So uh, basically, Lee and I are not nearly interesting enough to hold the audience. That's so true. We want you to come on and be more interesting. That's right for us. Yeah. to get more listeners. Although yeah. we don't have a Patreon for this, so no, there's, there's no there's... money being made here. It's just <laughs> it's just for an ego boost. That's all it is. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I will remind everybody listening to this on the uh, Facebook page. I'm going to push it hard to try to get some people to throw their lists at us if if they so do desire. And until then, uh, we will see you guys next time. Thank you very much, Daniel, for joining me tonight. This has been great. Thank you so much. Yeah, as always. And this is this is honestly something. I mean, we didn't record that many episodes in 2017. But this is uh, one of those just fun things I look forward to whenever we're going to do it. It's it's a it's a blast. So yeah, I enjoy it. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for your continued support. Last year, all you guys were great. All the comments and all the thumbs up and all that bullshit on Facebook. And uh, look forward to more of that in 2018. Our first episode of 2018 is now in the books, and uh, we will see you guys next time. Goodbye.
you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For more episodes, links to our Apple Podcast site, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as other websites and podcasts of similar interest, please visit us at tmbtos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.